This podcast is a feature of HSA's event, Hinduism Appreciation Week 2021. Our aim is to provide a platform to discuss issues in the context of our theme, Better Together, which include relationships, unity, and community. Our speaker, Menika Chandrakar, is the Manager of Community Education Outreach Services at the Asian Family Support Services of Austin. As a warning, this podcast discusses issues including interpersonal and domestic violence and abuse in relationships. What we specifically wanted to talk to you about, which is supporting victims of violence and abuse and domestic violence, especially in the South Asian community. So could we just get started? Um, would you introduce yourself and maybe give us a little bit of background or info about yourself? Sure. So my name is Manika Chandrakar. I'm the manager of outreach um, services at AFSA, Asian Family Support Services of Austin. And we are a nonprofit based here in Austin. We don't just serve Asians. We don't just serve families. We don't just work in Austin, but we support survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault in central Texas from immigrant communities. Um, so my, my role, you know, we have kind of two teams at AFSA. One is the direct services advocates, and they're the people who work with our clients, um, who are there with them, with whatever support and services they need, you know, whether it's just talking stuff out, um, helping them be safe if they need to safety plan or get out of a dangerous situation, uh, helping them in court if they're going to court for various things, helping them access medical care, working with their kids in schools, um, helping getting them into housing, either emergency shelter or what we call transitional housing if people have left an abuser or try to get on their feet. So there's a range of stuff the direct services team does. I'm on the outreach team. It's community education, outreach and prevention. So on our side, we work to kind of uh, make the hotline ring more make it, and also make it ring less kind of at the same time. So making it ring more is that we're getting out into the community, we're talking about AFSA, we're talking about our services, which are what we call culturally grounded. A lot of people say like culturally competent, but we kind of feel like you can't be competent in any culture. So culturally grounded, which means really respecting the person, their culture, that and, and kind of like what that means to them and um, creating space for that and making that kind of central to their journey. We call it survivor focused because, you know, we don't want to tell people what to do. They're the ones who uh, have kind of had their autonomy and power taken away from them. And we want them to have that autonomy and power back when they're with us and working with us. And everything is language accessible. So, you know, we have a lot of immigrant and second generation clients and so all of our services are language accessible. If we don't have someone on staff who speaks the language, we always will provide an interpreter. That's really important to us too. So the outreach team gets into the community, talks about our services, um, talks about the dynamics of domestic violence and sexual assault in a way that can hopefully resonate with our communities. So we're not just gonna walk in and be like, well, let me tell you. You know, it's like you wanna walk in with respect and humility um, and kind of let people know that these things do happen and it's not the survivor's fault. And, you know, here are ways you can support a survivor. So that's kind of making it ring more, right? Like raising awareness around these issues, kind of letting people know that we're around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if they want to get in touch with us and if they need services, uh, everything is free and confidential. Then there's making it ring less, which is kind of the prevention side. So talking about ways to prevent violence, um, ways to support survivors, ways that communities can create their own support systems. I always say like, we are trying to put ourselves out of business, right? It would be amazing if AFSA didn't have to exist. Um, so that's kind of the outreach side of things and, and that's my role. So 
I'm excited to be here and to have this conversation with you guys. Yeah, I hope we can be a part of making the ring, uh, the line ring less. That would be great. That'd be amazing. Um, and it's a community-wide thing, right? Like we all have to pitch in and, and do it. So I guess um, the first question that we wanted to start off with um, is very pertinent to current times. So obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and that's affected a lot of different aspects of everybody's lives. Um, but we wanted to ask how has COVID affected relationships in your eyes or um, in the work that you do, where have you seen uh, changes that might've been due to COVID? Well, I think COVID has affected all relationships. So even healthy relationships, right? We're just not used to this. We're not meant to do this. So um, even if you have amazing healthy relationships in your household, whoever's with you, if it's a roommate or a partner or family, like they've kind of been tested, right? So there's a, there's strain, there's stress. We are all kind of together. We don't have the outlets we normally have. Like whatever your thing is, when you go out to kind of rejuvenate yourself and connect with your community, like we're, we can't do those or we're doing them, but they're very, very different. Um, you know, parents are trying to teach at home, which is, which is a lot and work full time. Students don't have like their campus life. So I think we should like definitely hold space and realize that nobody's relationship is, or rather everyone's relationship has been affected by what's been going on for the last 11, it's been 11 months, like, you know, it's a long time. In terms of serving survivors of domestic violence, um, one problem for us is that they're isolated from their support systems. So say that they live with their abuser, but normally they get to go out and see friends or see family or go to class or, go to you know, their faith communities, go to their places of worship. Those things aren't happening. Um, abusers tend to be home now if they're working from home. So that can also be a problem because if somebody wants to reach out for help, they may not be able to find the time or space where the abuser's not there kind of monitoring what they're doing. There's, so there's fewer opportunities to reach out for help or to find those supports or those services because everyone's in such close quarters. There's also just like other strains, like the stress we're all feeling if there's financial insecurity. And a lot of those stressors can exacerbate domestic violence, right? So if they're in an abusive situation, if the household is under stress or the family's under stress, that can make things worse for the survivor because that stress is being taken out on them. So that's kind of what we're seeing. Uh, we are really worried about clients and, and survivors being isolated because it's not like we you know, they can come to our office. We are functioning as an agency and we're offering all of our services, but, you know, we don't have an office right now that they can come to and be in a safe, secure location and, and work with their advocate. Um, we, we're not out in the communities. So we're not at like a temple at a festival handing out our hotline number to everyone who passes so somebody can take it in a really safe way and have it. Um, or maybe talk to somebody who's standing at the table and get some help that way. So, that's kind of how we're seeing it affect um, people in general, survivors of violence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I guess like the flip side of that is what are, in your opinion, the most important aspects of a healthy relationship? Or even right now, what can we do to promote that healthy relationship? Well, there's a few things. I think I'm going to talk about a healthy relationship by talking about kind of what an unhealthy one would look like. You know, abuse and assault, sexual assault as well, is about power and control. So domestic violence is about kind of a pattern of, of 
somebody exerting power and control over someone else. And a lot of relationships we have, there's a power imbalance, you know, if uh, just in a normal relationship, you know, if, if there's a, if you have a relationship like a, like a teacher student relationship, somebody's holding more power, right? Or a boss or employee or within a household, a parent and child. So there are relationships where there's just like somebody has more power than somebody else. And that person in power needs to remember that, right? And be really mindful of that, that if a boss is asking something of an employee, they have to remember, hey, I can like fire this person or take their livelihood away from them. I need to be careful about what I'm asking because they might feel obligated to do something that, that they really don't want to do. So that's kind of something about being in a healthy relationship is being mindful of that power imbalance, right? If that's there. But domestic violence is a pattern of someone exerting their power and control over someone else. So, and that happens many different ways. I think a lot of people can really easily tie like physical violence to abuse, right? That's, I think that's a pretty easy connection for us all to make that that's bad and that's abusive, but that's not every situation. And honestly, in our communities, it's usually a lot more emotional or verbal. So kind of making somebody feel small, making them feel like they're the ones who just you know don't have it together, that they're worthless, that they're never gonna find anybody else, that they won't be able to make it if they leave on their own isolating them from their friends and family, right? So just kind of taking away from them the supports they have in their lives and kind of, you know, cutting, kind of driving wedges between them or forbidding them from seeing people that they care about. Uh, that's another way that people can like hold on to control financial, right? So controlling if somebody else can earn money saying, no, you can't go to get a job or if you're an immigrant, no, I'm going to hold on to your papers or not let you apply for a work permit or whatever, um, or controlling how much money they have and how they can spend it. That is huge. That's like 99% of cases of domestic abuse contain some sort of financial abuse as well. Um, they're sexual. You know, I think a lot of times in our culture, we don't always realize that sexual assault can happen within a, a long-term relationship or a partnership, and it absolutely can, or a dating relationship. And that's something else, right? Not, not getting the person's consent, asking them to do things that they're not comfortable with, threatening them, coercing them, all those are components of abuse. Um, so there's, there's lots of ways that abusers will try to assert this power and control over somebody else. And like I said, it's a pattern. And a lot of times it kind of follows a cycle where, you know, things seem great. And a lot of abusers are super charming and, and, come off as really wonderful. And then there's a slow build. And then, you know, things get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then there's something really bad that happens. And, you know, then they may just become really apologetic and say, I'm never going to do it again. I can't believe I did that. I love you so much. Please, you know, please, like we can make this work. I'll do anything for you. And then they're great again for a while. And then we cycle back. So these are kind of the components of abuse. And so I would say that like a healthy relationship would not have those things, right? So there would be open and honest communication. There would be trust, that's huge. A big thing that abusers use is they become, you know, like, who are you with? Who are you talking to? I don't want you going out by yourself. Um, let me look at your phone. Like, I should be able to see your messages. I should be able to trust you, right? That's not actual trust. So real trust, letting that person have their lives, trusting them, um, them trusting you, and letting them be their own person and have their autonomy, right? Not trying to control everything they're doing. 
even if we're in a relationship. And this is, again, I mean, we're talking more in terms of domestic relationships or romantic relationships or partnerships, but this could apply to anything. You know, we could do the same, we could have the same kind of conversation with elementary school kids about friendships, right? So like a healthy relationship, regardless of what kind it is, has a lot of the same components. So definitely being able to talk openly and honestly and respectfully, be able to resolve your differences in a healthy way, right? Which is talking to each other, communicating. I mean, it's even healthy if one person just goes, you know what, I can't talk about this right now. I'm just going to walk away for a little while, take a breath, and we can talk when I feel a little calmer. You know, you might see that as negative, but if that person's being respectful and kind of communicating what they need, then that's pretty good, right? And the other person goes, oh, okay, I, I get it. Let's take a break and we'll come back to this later. So the communication portion of it, like I said, respect, understanding the other person is an individual, letting them have their autonomy, not, not trying to control everything they do. Um, I think those are kind of the main things, you know, and you want to be, um, I have a kindergartner and in her class, they talk about being with someone who fills their bucket, right? So like filling your bucket of happiness and self-worth versus draining your bucket. So, so that's what you want. You know, I mean, we all, nothing's perfect. No relationship is perfect, but I think most of the time you want to be filling each other's buckets and making each other feel good about themselves and happy and seen and heard as, as their own people. Uh, that's huge. And the one thing I do want to point out is that um, abuse is never the survivor's fault, right? There's a lot of victim blaming in our cultures across the board in mainstream American culture as well, that that person must have done something to deserve it, or it's that person's fault because they didn't leave. It is always the abuser's fault. That is someone choosing to do harm to somebody else. And the survivor is dealing with it, um, but really has no control, like we talked about of the situation. No, completely agree. And I think that's something that's been stressed a lot, but very recently. So there's definitely space to talk about it more. Um, you talked a lot about power imbalances, but you also gave examples of relationships where these power imbalances aren't necessarily a bad thing or automatically leading to an unhealthy relationship. So I guess my follow-up was kind of how can these relationships function healthily with power imbalances if they exist? I mean, I think, like I said, it's just, it's up to the person who with the power to recognize that, right? That's the most healthy thing. I mean, there's something just inherent, like if you're in, working in a workplace and one person is supervising somebody else or one person has the power to, to fire somebody else or decide how much they make or whatever. That's just part of the structure of the job. That's that's part of the whole thing. Or if you're a professor and a student, there's a, there's a power difference there, right? The professor can grade you, uh, can influence you, give you recommendations, influence your career or whatever else you're interested in. So they're more experienced. So that's the kind of thing that it would be the person in power's responsibility to really recognize, you know, and set up boundaries that are healthy, which is another big thing in a healthy relationship that there are boundaries, right? So and respect for one another's boundaries. So I would say that that's something that's important. And then it's also good for the person with less power to recognize that dynamic, right? So if they feel an obligation, like, oh, I'm being asked to do something I'm really not comfortable with, but I feel like I should do it because I don't want to make this person mad because they have a lot of influence on my life. Hopefully, and this is all, everything I'm going to say today is with the caveat that if it's safe, right? If you feel safe doing this, um, they can say, you know what? I, I don't feel comfortable doing that actually. Can we work around it? I just, I just want to let you know that's not something I want to be doing. 
And, and so it's, it's a two-way street, but there has to be that healthy communication and that awareness of the fact that there is a power imbalance. Yeah, definitely. So it's actually kind of interesting that we were talking about power imbalances, because I think one of the next things that we were wanted to kind of get into was how South Asian culture impacts relationship dynamics in any context, whether it's romantic or familial or um, just friendships. And I think we all know that South Asian culture does um, definitely have aspects of it that um, talk about um, power and respect and how that's handled. So we were just kind of wondering how um, you've seen South Asian culture impact um, overall relationship dynamics. So I think like a lot of cultures, right? Our culture has a lot of that too, like respect for your elders, which sounds great and is probably great a lot of the time, but it also puts that power imbalance into play, right? Where somebody might feel like they can't say that this person makes me uncomfortable or this person has done or said something that I didn't like that made me feel like, you know, my boundaries are being violated. And so I think that's one thing where we kind of, you know, as a culture are about really revering and honoring people older than us, which is great a lot of the times, but that's what it also, like that flip side of that is that somebody could feel uncomfortable asserting that that someone's doing something that doesn't make them feel very good. Kind of one of the examples I think of is how, you know, like your little kid and like some uncle or auntie that you like don't really know, like wants a hug or a kiss, right? Or wants you to come and sit in their lap. And um, a lot of times in the environment, people like go sit, like, so this is your auntie so-and-so, like go. And, you know, that kid is not comfortable, but they might do it because this is the thing that they're supposed to be doing and kind of what we're teaching through that. And again, it's not just South Asian cultures. It's a lot of cultures is that you have to kind of be uncomfortable so you don't hurt this person's feelings. Right. And that's something that we teach kids from a really young age, like just go along with it. It's fine. You know, like that's fine. And so I, I think that that's kind of a really concrete example of maybe a way that we could be more aware that like, you know, if the kid could say, no, I don't feel like it. And then the parents would go, oh, okay, that's fine. Go get, do you want to give a high five? Do you want a handshake? Do you want to wave? Whatever you're comfortable with. Because the idea is like, you're putting this other person's comfort over what that child, you know, feels like is safe and acceptable for their bodies. And that is something that I think, you know, is just really ingrained in our culture. Um, it's like, oh, just go do it. What's the big deal? And, you know, we have a lot of other things that, again, I, I don't think are unique to South Asian cultures, but there is a stigma against survivors, right? Like, you know, well, there must be something wrong with them. Why did they put up with it? Why didn't they leave? Um, so that kind of victim blaming that, that they must have done something or they put themselves into a situation or they should have known better around sexual assault. That's one, right? And again, not restricted to South Asian culture. Why were they wearing that? Why were they there? They should have known better. That's why you shouldn't go to places like that. Rather than saying, oh, somebody chose to do something horrible to you and that person's at fault, right? And then also, I think one thing I've noticed a lot in, in South Asians is just the belief that it happens to other people. Like, oh, well, that happens to people who are less educated or that happens with people who are from this region or who are this religion. And it's not true. I mean, this, the sad truth is domestic violence and sexual assault happen to people regardless of religion or culture or education level, level or socioeconomic level. Like it happens, it's very common. 
And um, that is definitely like a, something that I've spoken to people about when I'm out and about in the community. Well, they'll be like, well, not us though, right? Like the other groups. And you're like, no, yeah, us too, <laughs> like everyone. Um, and I think another thing in terms of not just South Asians, but like also um, just broader Asian cultures or other Asian cultures is this idea of like wanting to really project this idea that everything's perfect and everything's great all the time, right? Like we don't want to be judged by other people in our in our kind of social circle. We don't want to show any kind of cracks or weaknesses. We want to always project this idea of success, whatever that success looks like. Um, so we're worried like if there is an abusive situation in our family that we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to reach out for help because we don't want people to see that vulnerability or know that something is going on in our family. And, and also that's fed into this whole idea of like a model minority myth, which a lot of Asians deal with, right? That like, well, we're, we're better, we're better off in terms of minorities in the U S like we're fine. Like we do fine financially we're, we go, go to good schools. Like we're not really trouble. And the problem with that is, is one, it's a standard that we feel like we have to live up to. And then the other thing is that there are not services available to people like us, or we feel like we can't reach out for help, right? Because we're like, well, everyone in my community seems to be doing okay. So clearly I'm the weird one. And I feel like I don't want to draw attention to this, or I feel like no one can help me. And that, that's not great, right? We want people to feel like they can reach out for help when they need it. And that they're fine and it's it's nothing wrong with them. Like, but if they need the support and services, they're there. And then the other thing I think is, which is also can be a good thing, but in this context, just kind of feeling like your duty to your family and your community mean more than like what you owe yourself, right? So if you feel like you're gonna make waves in your community, and sometimes it's really valid. Sometimes we have people who are survivors who are from a really small community of people that from their culture. And if they disclose abuse, they're out of that community and they've lost all their support. So they might decide they wanna stay because that support means more to them than, than leaving and, and living a, an independent life you know, on their own, isolated from their community. But we definitely feel like we have a duty to do what our parents are telling us to do and to make them happy and you know, make sure that everything's going smoothly and not to, not to make waves. And sometimes that's great. Sometimes that, that's an amazing part of our culture. But other times in this context, it's like, well, people feel like then they can't rock the boat or they can't ask for help or they don't want to say they're feeling not so great or they've experienced trauma because then you're, you're kind of letting everyone down. And then I think, like I said, the flip side of that is that it can be really beautiful. Like we have a collectivist culture. We're all about like, you know, I always laugh when I have like white American friends who said, oh, it was a really big wedding. It was like a hundred people. And you're like, hmm. <laughs> we're just, we love having people around us. We, um, you know, everybody's in everybody's lives. And that can be a strength because a lot of times, like then you have that in a healthy situation, you have that support system. You have like a huge extended family um, to be close to and to, to experience different things with and to have different kinds of relationships with. And that's great. So that can be a positive, but there are kind of negatives that go along with that too. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that community aspect is something a lot of people feel and can understand. Um, but it does, I think, also contribute to the fact that reputation is so highly valued yeah. and um, kind of like why it's so hard to speak up. And I think, so I guess our next question, acknowledging that it's so difficult for some of these people to 
kind of talk about their trauma, talk about these difficult, um, difficult conversations is how can we deconstruct this stigma? How can we combat it within our own communities? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot we can do. And I have to say, I think our community is on that journey. Um, I started working at AFSA two and a half years ago. And I was really surprised, like the amount of times I'm out in the community and I just kind of say, yeah, we're an agency and we work with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. And I don't mince words because my role is to work in community education. So I feel like here's an opportunity. And then I've been pleasantly surprised by the number of people who are like, yeah, no, that's great. We really need that. You know, because, and I feel like, you know, a couple decades ago, people would be like, well, that that's very unpleasant. <laughs> Why do you do that depressing work? Um, so I do think attitudes are changing. The things we can do as a community, um, talking about it, right? Like that's a big deal, like not making it some sort of shameful secret. And that again is based on people's, you know, how safe people are feeling and, and how much they're choosing to share, right? Or how much they wanna talk about it. But we definitely know when we've had survivors speak out, like former AFSA clients, just them relating their story makes other people feel like it's okay for them to reach out for help or okay for them to talk about it too. So that's important. If people are in a place where they feel like they can speak out and share their story and it's empowering to them, like it shouldn't be something that traumatizes them again. But if they're in a place where they feel like they can do that and do that and be empowered and feel good about it, that's huge. We need to stop blaming the survivors, right? And we need to kind of really look at this as something that an abuser chooses or a perpetrator chooses to do to somebody else and stop kind of saying, well, why did she stay? Why did, you know, survivors have lots of reasons why they might stay with abusers um, and they know what's best for themselves, right? So kind of turning it over on the survivor and saying, well, if it were so bad, she'd leave or well, she puts up with it or, or anyone, you know, I'm using the pronoun she, but obviously a survivor can be someone of any gender and a perpetrator could be someone of any gender, right? So this definitely happens where the male is the, the man is a survivor and a woman is an abuser. This happens in, you know, um, queer relationships. I mean, it, it happens to everybody. So, but stop blaming survivors. And that might be a different stigma. If, if a man is a survivor and is, and the woman is a perpetrator, then it might be like, well, what's your problem? Like, what kind of man are you? You know, why are you even crying about this? Or why are you complaining about this? you're the man, or if a man is sexually assaulted, you know, there's a whole idea that men should love sex whenever, however they get it. And if a man is assaulted and feels like they've been violated and traumatized, some people would just brush that off and be like, well, you're a guy. So like, why are you even complaining about it? Right. So that's a huge part of it is, you know, stop blaming survivors, really shifting on the abusers and the perpetrators and realizing that they're the ones who are in control of the situation, understanding that survivors do stay and they have their reasons for staying, emphasizing just like how common it is. And like I said, sadly common, right? But it is, it happens in every community, every socioeconomic, you know, level, doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter what religion you are, it's happening in your community. So just talking about how common it is can make the, the person who's suffering and feeling completely isolated, maybe feel like there is solidarity out there and support for them in the community. The hugest thing is just believing survivors. You know, if survivors are telling you that they've experienced something, believe them and listen to them. And also don't try to put your own 
ideas of what the next right thing is to do on them. Like someone might be like, why don't you just call the police? Well, there's reasons to not call the police. Why don't you leave? Sometimes it's really dangerous to leave. Um, or that person has no other income or that person wants to stick around with their kids and their family is going to be torn apart if they leave. So that person has their own reasons for doing what they're doing and they know their situation best and how to keep themselves safe the best way. So listening to them and just supporting them with whatever they decide to do and not trying to be like, well, let's, I'm going to take you to the police station right now. You know, just not prescribing like what you think is right, but listening to them and supporting them through whatever they decide to do. We do need to kind of tackle toxic masculinity, you know? And I think because it hurts everyone, it doesn't just hurt women, it hurts men as well because they don't get to be their full selves. They don't reach out when they have a mental health issue or if they are survivors, you know? So just kind of, the stereotypes and the gender roles and the whole idea of like toxic masculinity in our culture. Um, and then also just teaching consent, you know, and, and understanding consent and boundaries, which I said is, you know, can start super early. It can start from the little kid who's like supposed to go hug and kiss so-and-so uncle and is not comfortable. Right. And, and carrying that through because um, it's important. Like we all have boundaries and we need to, be feel okay and feel comfortable asserting those and having other people respect them. So it's something that I think we need to just be a little bit more mindful about in our communities. And like I said, this applies to South Asian communities in my experience, and I can only speak to my experience, but I think it also applies to a lot of other communities that we work with at AFSA. Yeah, definitely. And also just, I, I think we've kind of been talking about, um, violence in the context of culture and how that affects it. But another question that we had was how does religion or has religion ever played a role in domestic violence or abuse? And how have you seen that? And in what ways might it play a role? So it can, it can be like many things, a negative or a positive. There is something called spiritual abuse, which is where an abuser might not let the survivor practice their religion, might keep them away from their faith community, um, might undermine their religion or taunt them about it. That, especially with the, the clients we work with is huge, right? Because for them, their faith community, their religion could be a source of strength and support and kind of comfort. And if they can't access that, then that's a problem for them, right? And for them to kind of get through their lives. There's also a way that it can help and, you know, when we work with these same survivors as they're on their journey away from abuse or away from assault, that kind of comes into play. And that, that's part of what we think about as a culturally grounded agency, that if it's really important for someone to do a religious ritual or to have a God with them in court, you know, in their purse or whatever it is that they need to help them, we want to value that and make sure that they have it. So that's two sides of it. There's a spiritual abuse side and there's a hopefully like if it's really important to the survivor and they're on their journey that we can center it and support them and make them feel like they're getting that piece of themselves back. The other thing that we do on the outreach team at AFSA is we do partner with faith communities and with faith leaders. So we'll be, I mean, in a, in a non-COVID time, we would be at Buddhist temples, Hindu temples, mosques, like all these different places at various festivals um, and there are those, these places are usually really great about having us um, be part of those cultural celebrations and those festivals because it's a great time to just be in the community, do something fun with the kids, tell people who we are and what we do and the services we have. 
Um, you know, we can even offer like trainings to faith leaders or workshops where we work with them about recognizing abuse in their, in their communities, because a lot of times people aren't going to come to us first. They're going to go to their religious leader if they're experiencing abuse. And we want to make sure that that person feels supported and able to deal with that. So those are kind of different ways that faith comes into play. I mean, faith is huge for a lot of South Asians, right, regardless of what it is. And so we want to make sure that that's that's one, a way that they feel like is available to them when they're starting to get out, you know, get away from an abusive situation or, or move on with their lives and, and kind of get that autonomy back. And then also we want to make sure that we're partnering with these faith communities so that we are reaching people who may not pick up the phone and call us, but we're reaching them through their faith communities. I, I've never heard of spiritual abuse, but that's like opening my eyes to a whole different, like, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of different aspects of this that I think are covered, but there's other things that don't get talked about as much. Yeah. 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 And it's something, you know, certain things we just, we see very often in our work with our clients. So those are the things we want to draw attention to because some people are experiencing these things and, and they may have a vague idea that there's something wrong, but they maybe have not yet been able to put the term abuse to it, like financial abuse. And um, there's also, with our communities, there's a lot of immigration stuff, right? Like if one spouse is the green card holder and another spouse comes over and is unable to work, well, there's financial abuse because that person can't work and they're dependent on the person who has the green card or the citizenship. And then the other thing is that if they have kids, those kids are born here, they're US citizens. So if, you know, I said it before, people have their reasons for staying. If that's the situation and say the mother were to leave because the father's abusive, she'll get deported and then the kids are here because they're citizens and she'll be separated from her kids. And I'm sure you can imagine that that's not something that, that most mothers would want to do. So yeah, there are a lot of components and there's ones you wouldn't think about. And some of those are the ones that we actually see more often because they are part of kind of the cycle when we have immigrant survivors. And I think a lot, a huge portion of um, HSA, and then also just people our age, um, are children of immigrants. So we've kind of grown up in the, grown up seeing these types of themes, seeing these um, in, in these communities, essentially. And that kind of led us to ask, um, how do children who grow up with immigrant parents or in immigrant families and have seen that abuse, um, how, how, how are they affected? And how does that kind of translate in later in their lives? Yeah, I think, um, well, I know from, from talking to some students who are South Asian or, or from other Asian cultures, you know, whatever, and I think we've all experienced this when we go to college, it's like there's stuff that you do at home that you just think is normal, and then you go to college, and you're like, oh, wait, nobody else did that? Like, nobody else put that on their pancakes, or nobody else, like, ate this with their roti, whatever it was, right? And you're like, oh, huh, I guess that was just my family. So I think in the context of abusive you know, households or domestic violence at home, a lot of kids until they grow up, go to college and have some distance, then they go, oh, oh, I don't think I grew up in a very healthy family. Like, I don't, I think there may have been abuse, right? But part of it is you're just trying to survive and get through your day when you're in it. And then you get a little more distance and you might just talk to different people or you're just, you're getting a different vantage point and you're realizing, oh, maybe I didn't grow up in a healthy household. So that's, you know, that's kind of that distance sometimes causes that realization to happen. And I think one of the main things is there's just a lack of resources, right? There's a lack of culturally grounded resources 
for people who are second generation or first generation. And I think that, you know, that's one thing just with ASA, like you don't have to be an immediate crisis. If, if you grew up in an abusive situation and you and you need some support now, you can reach out to us. Um, and I'll give you our hotline number kind of at the end. So you guys have it and maybe we can post it with, you know, with the podcast as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think that's one thing, right? Like you could, you could reach out and there's some great agencies out there, but you could reach out to like a mainstream agency. They might not get the dynamics of the household you grew up with or like, but why was it so important for, you know, for your mother-in-law, for your grandmother on your dad's side to, to do this with your mother, like just those kind of family dynamics, intergenerational dynamics and community dynamics. Um, to, have an, to have services that understand that is a little bit hard, right? So, and then I also think there is, um, we just carry trauma, right? So we carry generational trauma that comes down from having immigrant parents, even if we grew up and experienced firsthand racism or xenophobia or being made fun of um, and just trying to fit in, like all that stuff and the trauma that your parents may have experienced coming and dealing with racism and trying to forge a new life and feeling really isolated. We carry all that with us, right? So it's not just that you experienced abuse or lived in an abusive, really, uh, abusive household growing up. It's that you have all this other stuff that comes with being part of an immigrant community. And that also adds to the burden. And then on the flip side, I don't think we reach out for help as much as we should, right? And that might be for a lot of reasons. One could be that there just aren't services available or we've tried and maybe the person we talked to didn't seem to really get us or our family or our community and it just didn't feel comfortable or healthy. Um, and the other is that, again, that stigma that we also have in our community and lots of other communities about reaching out for help with mental health. And, that, and that's huge too. And I think that's another big piece of this whole puzzle is recognizing mental health issues and again, not blaming the people dealing with them, but also and not feeling that reaching out for help is some sort of weakness, right? If somebody needs some help or support with mental health issues. So yeah, I would just say that the lack of kind of resources that are culturally grounded, the fact that we carry our, maybe our own trauma from being children of immigrants, but also the generational trauma of our parents coming and kind of what what we kind of inherited that kind of makes it very challenging, I think, as an immigrant student. Yeah, definitely. And you kind of already touched on this, so I think I might know kind of where your answer will be for this next question. But we wanted to ask, do you think college campuses are providing enough resources to prevent or reduce the prevalence of domestic violence? And even if they do, are these resources addressing the unique aspects, like everything that we just talked about, of um, the immigrant experience or the Asian experience overall? Um, are they doing a good enough job or what more can be done? I can't speak to specific campuses and I, I didn't go to UT and I feel like every time I engage with UT, I learn about more that's there. So, um, but we do know overall, there's a lack of culturally grounded services, right? Just like nationwide. So it stands to reason that there's going to be not enough on any campus, and especially if that campus is in maybe less diverse, more isolated area, right? If it's in a metropolitan area, maybe a bit better. If it's out somewhere, maybe where there isn't kind of that, that big population of certain cultures and people making those decisions who are from those cultures, then it, it may not have it. 
So there's just in general, a dearth of culturally grounded services for survivors, which is really sad, but it's, it's true. But we do partner that saying, like we partner with a lot of groups at UT. So you guys, we partner with ADPAC, VAV. We've partnered with various like student groups and also like other campus organizations and departments to do programming. So that's one way we can do it, right? Like we can work together. And if there is a, a, an organization or a service, that's great, but also kind of maybe not so strong on the culturally grounded stuff, because not everyone can be, like we're not all experts in everything then we, we are happy to help collaborate and, and work together, whether that's putting on an event together or you know, helping to develop materials or talking with students, like whatever. I mean, that's kind of my job, like whatever people need. <laughs> it's like, you've got to meet people where they are. This is tough stuff that people don't normally voluntarily want to spend their time talking about, which is understandable. So we're here to help people feel comfortable and to help people feel safe. And in whatever way we can do that, we're happy to do it. So, you know, we partnered with a couple groups last October to do an event around the Indian matchmaking show on Netflix, right? So like it was a discussion around the show, which was great. And then we could also spin that off into a discussion about healthy relationships and culture and, you know, how the South Asian culture kind of perpetuates some of this stuff um, and, and where we could improve as a culture and where like things are great and, and we have our cultural strengths. So it was kind of a nice way of doing that. So there's, there's a million ways that we could work together with campus organizations. And we've had really great partnerships over the past, well, AFSA has been around since 1992. So definitely for a while, maybe not since 1992, but. Yeah. And I think like the resources that um, we've been made aware of and that are publicized, at least on the UT campus are really valuable resources to the student population. But I think one of the things you've talked about is meeting people where they are. And sometimes people aren't quite ready to take the step to contact an official authorities. Um, mm -hmm. For a lot of people, they're like support groups are the people that they confide in, um, whether that's like friends or um, family. And so as people who could easily be in this situation, what kind of support can students offer to their friends or family that are in abusive relationships? Or what kind of language can we use when we talk to them or advice can we offer them? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's also a good point that not everyone, we know that these these are underreported. These when, you know, domestic violence is underreported, sexual assault is underreported. Not everyone will pick up the phone and call the police. And that's okay. You know, people have their reasons. And definitely from immigrant communities, those reasons could be that they might have mistrust of law enforcement. They might be worried about immigration consequences if they call or report something. They might um, have trauma from their home country around law enforcement um, or authority or the criminal justice system. So there's a lot of reasons people don't call and that is not the only way to do it. And the truth is the vast majority of survivors do not contact the police, right? They also may not be want to be re-traumatized. If you talk to the police officer or go through the court system, you're going to have to reiterate your story. You're going to have to tell it again and again and again, and that can be really traumatic. So there are good reasons for people who choose to call law enforcement, and there are good reasons for people who don't. The vast majority of these incidents are underreported to the police. They're not reported, rather. The most important thing you can do is believe somebody, right? So when they tell you that they are experiencing abuse or that they've been assaulted, believe them. A lot of people talk about sexual assault being, you know, falsely reported or people crying wolf. Sexual assault is not falsely reported at any higher rates than any other crimes. 
right? So if somebody came to you and said, my car just got stolen, you wouldn't be like, hmm, I don't know. Did that really happen to you? Right? Like, so the number of times somebody's going to say, or rather the rate of somebody falsely reporting that their car has been stolen is the same as someone falsely reporting that they've been sexually assaulted, right? So if you would believe somebody saying that they got mugged or that their car was stolen, believe them when they say they've been assaulted. Um, don't press for details, right? Sometimes I think as, as humans, we want to go, well, then what, well, then what happened? But tell me what happened. Then did this happen? Do they do this? Did, no, let the person tell you as much as they're comfortable telling you and let it go. It's, that's their story. That's their information to hold. You're not owed anything, right? Um, and I think a lot of times we ask for those details because we want to kind of justify in our head what happened, but it's not necessary. And, and what you're doing is actually re-traumatizing this person who's already traumatized because you're trying to pull details from them. And again, it's about consent, right? And having your autonomy. And that person has had that taken from them. So you don't want to try to take more from them. You want to give them back that power and that autonomy. Um, don't judge, right? That's a huge one too. So don't be like, well, you should have known, you know, you shouldn't have, shouldn't have gone there. Um, why did you do that? Why didn't you leave earlier? All that stuff, don't do that. Because, um, like I said, it's not the survivor's fault. Somebody chose to do this to them. And that person is at fault, not the survivor. And like I've said before, don't push whatever course of action you think is best. Don't say, well, get up, we're going to the police or, well, let's call your parents or whatever it is. You know, just let that person be in the moment. And people deal with trauma differently. I used to do uh, hospital accompaniments for people who had been sexually assaulted. And some of those were domestic violence cases. And, and you see the gamut of reactions. I and mean, we're all people, we're all different. Some people are very much like, just tell me what I have to do. Who do I have to call? What papers do I have to sign? Like, let's get through this. And they're very matter of fact and just going through the steps. Some people, um, you know, are crying and sad and upset and scared. Some people are laughing and joking, right? So you, you can't judge by somebody's reaction. You know, you can't make some sort of value judgment like, well, I don't think you're quite sad enough or you don't seem traumatized because we all react differently. We all deal with this kind of trauma differently. Um, so just like you don't want to push one course of action, you can't just assume there's like one right way the person should be acting. Um, so just kind of let them have their space let them listen to them, let them make their own decisions, support them in what they decide to do. Um, and it can be hard. I'm gonna acknowledge it, it can be hard if, if you feel like somebody's in an abusive situation and, and they're choosing not to leave, but they have their reasons and support, support that. And then you can provide resources. You know, We're always here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our hotline is 877-281-8371. I'll say it again, 877-281-8371. You can call anytime. It's all confidential. It's all free. And you know, if you're interested in being an ASSA client, we will get you into that process, which is also free and confidential. If you just want to talk or get other resources, call us and, and we'll help you out. Um, and you know, we're conducting this podcast in English, but I do want to say that we also, again, are language accessible. So if you call the hotline, and, you know, the person who answers doesn't speak the language, we will get an interpreter on the line. And so regardless of what language you speak, you can call and we will help you. Um, so that's the other thing, provide resources. 
you know, not again, not forcing somebody, but just being like, hey, here's some stuff that I've heard, or here's a number you can call if you want. Um, and as I said earlier, like you can, it can be a, a trauma that's just happened, or it could be something that happened, you know, a decade ago. And if you're still processing it or just kind of going through some new stuff, you can feel free to call us. Yeah, for sure. Um, thank you so much for that. Yeah. So I um, one of the last things we wanted to kind of come back to was more on the preventative side of things, but um, it's also on an individual level. What are some steps that people of Asian descent, especially those who are maybe first gen or second gen in the U.S., um, or just people um, in general, can take to cultivate those healthy relationships and prevent their relationships from um, being negative or toxic? Obviously, um, we don't want to assume that anybody can prevent um, domestic violence from happening or prevent abuse from happening. But um, I guess we're on the side of healthy relationships and given the context of an immigrant family, what are steps that people can take? I mean, I think one thing is, um, this isn't a discrete step, but I think culturally, as I mentioned before, that we all need to get better about talking about mental health, right? And, and recognizing that mental health is, is huge and plays a role in a lot of our lives and, you know, is something that many of us need support around and that's okay. Um, just kind of talking about feelings, <laughs> not just like, when's your exam and like, what's for dinner and, oh, do you need a ride there? Or, you know, I'm going to be staying at this friend's house late, like just really having conversations about how we're feeling emotionally and what's going on inside of us. So we don't feel so isolated. Um, it seems kind of disconnected, but I think it really is very much part of creating a healthier community that then has healthier relationships because we're more open and honest and grounded in kind of where we're at emotionally and what's going on. Um, I would say again, like spend time with people who fill your bucket, don't drain it, and not people who drain it, right? Like that's important. Uh, we all have friends that are our best friends in the world and sometimes we just can't deal with them for whatever reason. Um, so that happens, like it's never gonna be perfect all the time, but just like the people you're around should be making you feel like you can be your whole self as well. Like you're not hiding parts of yourself and that you can be honest and open and you don't feel like you're gonna be judged or um, made fun of, you know, that's kind of, or yeah, or anything like that. Um, and I would definitely say like, and again, if it's safe to do so, speaking out against, you know, toxic masculinity, against abuse, against harassment, you know, sometimes I think we're in, we're in a situation where there's like a group of people and one person does something that's not, not cool and really makes everyone uncomfortable, but nobody says anything. And it could be out of like six or seven people, five people are feeling that way. Um, and you just kind of let it pass. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that I feel like, well, if we could just all say, you know what, that wasn't cool and here's the reason why. Because, um, and I also think this is part of maybe again, how we're conditioned to just kind of put our heads down and be like, oh, it's fine, everything's okay. Um, and it can be uncomfortable to say, hey, that wasn't cool or you shouldn't have said that to that person. Um, but I think if we recognize it and call it out more, then hopefully like, 
one, the people who might be the target of that sort of behavior will feel supported and not feel like they're not, you know, um, not being called isolated from everyone else. And then the person who might be perpetrating or just like doing stuff that's not cool might realize that there are boundaries that they need to respect. And if you're in a place where it's not comfortable or not safe to call that person out, at least maybe afterwards reaching out to the person who was targeted and just saying, hey, I'm really sorry that happened. Do you need anything? I'm here for you. Feel free to vent or feel free to let me know if you need something. That kind of support I think is important because um, otherwise these things get perpetuated and, and it's because a lot of the time we don't say anything or, or do anything. Um, so just, just kind of supporting the person who might be the target of, of some sort of harassing or abusive behavior. Well, um, we're about wrapping up, but I wanted to say that um, the primary audience of this podcast and the people we're primarily publicizing it to will be students on the UT campus. Right. Um, with that in mind, did you have any closing thoughts you wanted to share and um, just anything else you wanted to add? Um, I know I've said it a few times, but I'll say it again. Belief survivors, if somebody tells you some, that they're experiencing abuse or have been sexually assaulted, it's so, so important. And it, I think it's been said a lot, especially over the last couple of years, um, but it's something that I think still needs to be said and cannot be said often enough. And the other thing I just wanna say is, you know, if, if you need support, even if you're not the survivor, if you have questions, you know, please feel free to reach out to us. If it's 2 a.m., you can call us. Somebody will pick up the phone. Um, again, that's 877-281-8371. And we're here for you. And there is support in the community if you need it. Um, that's the main thing. Like we are here with services, with support. We're ready to listen. So if you need somebody, you can call AFSA. Um, so you're not alone if you're experiencing abuse or assault. And if you don't feel like you can reach out to anybody else, you can reach out to us. And if you don't feel ready to do that, you know we exist, you know the number, um, if you ever need us, reach out. So, cause it, it can be isolating and I can't imagine what it is for you guys right now. Cause you're um, like on a campus that's locked down or I'm sure like your, your activities and everything are limited. So aside from dealing with that situation, if you're dealing with some sort of abusive situation or you're a survivor of assault, again, you're more isolated, right? Which is kind of what we started out the conversation talking about how the pandemic is isolating survivors. So not only are you dealing with this trauma, you may not have the support system that you'd normally have that would help you through it. So I just wanna offer that we're there um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if anybody needs us. Yeah, and we'll include AFSA's contact information with all our publicity materials as well. Awesome, thank you. Yeah. Well, that's all from us. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think I speak for both of us when I say this is a really great conversation. Good, I'm glad, thanks for having me and thanks for raising this, this topic you know, with your community because it's important for us to talk about. And so thanks for making the space for it. Definitely. Thank you so much. It was very informative. I definitely learned things today that I didn't know before. So um, I'm glad. And also just kind of adding on to your message at the end, I, I definitely think that um, our listeners uh, should know that um, if they need access to any of these resources or want um, anything that you offered here today, we, they can also definitely come to us and we can um, 
provide any materials that um, you might have given us that they didn't have access to before. Of course, that'd be great. Yes, awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you guys. Um, I like this a lot. And just let me know if you need any other information or materials, or if you have any additional questions, feel free to get in touch. And yeah, yeah, thanks for